We will be in Nahum, Nahum chapter 1, as we continue our series through the Minor Prophets, or the Book of the Twelve. We call it the Book of the Twelve because that's how the Hebrew scribes put it together. They put all twelve of the Minor Prophets into one scroll. It, we can't find the Minor Prophets uh, separate. They, weren't, they were never studied, studied separately. They were always studied together as one unit because, as we talked about last week, the, the judgment of God, the wrath of God against sin and sinners is certain, but it's also true that God's salvation is certain, and both are going to be true and made possible through a son. So if we're going to subtitle our series, it might be something like, Come Lord Jesus, because it's in Jesus that the punishment we are due and deserve, that it's absorbed, the wrath of God is, is drunk down in Christ, and the righteousness of God by which we can be saved is offered to all. We've seen that in every single prophet that we've covered thus far, and we will see it yet again in Nahum today. So, Nahum chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and continuing through verse 8. Verses 2 through 8, incidentally, are a hymn. They are a hymn to the righteousness and holiness and power and sovereignty of God. It was a hymn that the Hebrews could have sung over and over again. Nahum is written about the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. And if we had preached through Jonah, you would know that Jonah was the reluctant prophet of God who went to the city of Nineveh and preached the gospel, and Nineveh repented. Unfortunately, the repentance did not hold, and it only lasted a generation or so, and then Nineveh was right back to her atrocities, her crimes against humanity. She did terrible, terrible things. She would take war victims and amputate body parts, even Portions of people's faces she would cut off. She was a horrific enemy, intimidating the nations around her. And at the time Nahum writes, she's strong in number. She seems invincible. She seems to be a mighty foe. But Nahum writes to say Nahum will, Nineveh rather, will be cut off completely. He tells us in verse 8 and in verse 9. But he wants us to understand the character of the God, our God, who is acting behind this judgment that he purposes to bring against Nineveh. So he writes about this God in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The oracle, literally the word there is burden, of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. And here the hymn begins. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In the whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, bashing and caramel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The remaining verses 
of chapter 1 and indeed chapter 2 and chapter 3 uh, conclude for us that Nineveh will be overthrown. And indeed, Nineveh is overthrown in 612 B.C. Nineveh falls. But Nahum is not primarily just about Nineveh. You see, Nineveh represents for us the brutal wickedness, not only of the Assyrians, but the brutal wickedness of our own lives and our own hearts that God will indeed avenge, that he will indeed punish. This is why Nahum's prophecy is called a burden. The word burden means it's a prophecy that is grave and it's full of weight and labor. It's a heavy, heavy prophecy. But to be sure, God does what he promises. God promises that Nineveh will be overthrown, and she is. And praise God that God is a God who keeps his promises. But Nahum, again, is not just about Nineveh. That's why he doesn't date his book. You'll notice in some of the prophets, they tell us the kings that they're serving under. But in this one, we don't know who the king of Judah is at the time. Because Nahum wants us to understand that the book really doesn't have to be bounded by time. You don't have to understand when he was writing to understand that it's a message for the people of God in every generation. It's like Obadiah. Like Obadiah, his book is hope for us. It's hope for anyone facing an imposing enemy in any generation. You see, although Assyria seems invincible, the reality is the sin which so easily entangles us, Hebrews 12.1, is even stronger than Assyria. As God says to Cain in Genesis 4.7, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Do you ever feel like sin just desires you to take it, take you in, and take you farther than you ever wanted to go and keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, that sin is crouching at your door. You see, sin is that which you must master, God tells Cain. Sin is stronger and more ruthless and more vile than Assyria ever was. Sin has done more damage to more husbands and more wives and more kids and more families and more societies than Nineveh ever did. We need to see in our sin the wretchedness and the wickedness of Nineveh. We need to understand the enemy that we face called sin and the enemy that we face called death because the last time I checked, one out of every one people dies. But the promise is this. The enemies of sin and the enemies of death have been defeated in Christ. The defeat of sin and the defeat of death is as certain as Christ's victory at the cross. And so when we read Nahum, we ought to read into it Our sin, our death, and the fact that like Nineveh, Christ has declared, God has declared, if we take refuge in him, verse 7, it is already conquered. You see, Nahum has as much to do with our narcissism as Assyria's Nineveh. It has as much to do with our daily battle in flesh and blood against sin as it does battles waged centuries ago. When we are tempted to surrender to the already defeated enemy, which Nineveh was. Because if God calls you out for defeat, you're already defeated. When we are tempted to surrender to the already defeated enemy that we call sin, we must focus on the full character and capacity of God. We must do what Nahum does. What does he do? He introduces his book by saying, Look at this awesome, powerful God. And then secondly, we must take refuge in our good God. First, we've got to focus on the full character and capacity of God. 
When we give in to sin, when we give in to the enemy, when we feel powerless in the face of sin, it is often because, I submit to you, North Roanoke, because we have forgotten who our God is. Did you see what Nahum said in verse 2? God is a jealous and avenging God. Nahum begins where God began all the way back in the Ten Commandments, with the jealousy of God for God. God must be jealous for himself, because who else could he be jealous for? There's nothing more glorious, more awesome, more wonderful, more weighty, more excellent than God. There's nothing more excellent than God. Nothing in the universe is as God-centered as God is. In Exodus 20, verse 5, God says, You shall not bow down to the idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. A jealous God seeks exclusive faithfulness from the heart. Not a house, not a heart, rather, with divided loyalties. Now, some of you have seen, and some of you may have on your car, that bumper sticker that says, A House Divided. And it's got that beautiful maroon and orange VT on one side. And it's got that puke orange V on the other side. And you're driving down the road because somebody in the house likes the Hokies and somebody in the house likes the Cavaliers. And that might be okay in college football, though I don't understand how you can't find a perfectly good man or a perfectly good woman who went to Blacksburg and not Charlottesville. But anyway... That might be okay in your college football allegiances, but it's not okay in the kingdom of God. God is a jealous God. and He he has little tolerance for those of us who want to put the fish on one side of our car, but inside of the car is riding around a renegade who has no heart for the things of God. God is a jealous God. And if we keep on refusing his desire for an exclusive heart connection to him, then we are what he calls us in verse 2. We are his enemies. We are his adversaries. And God takes vengeance. Three times it tells us in verse 2. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. What, What is wrath? We don't like to talk about God's wrath, do we? (laughs) Praise God, God's wrath was drunk down dry in Christ. But for those of us who want to play church and really be the enemy of God, His wrath is still there. Poured out against all of us who don't take refuge in God. What is wrath? Wrath is simply this. It's the holy reaction of a holy God to sin. Baker says so in his commentary on page 27. Paul I submit to you, may have been having his quiet time in Nahum when he was writing Ephesians chapter 2. Do you remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3? We are all by nature children of wrath. You see, apart from Christ, we're all Nineveh. Apart from Christ, we're all Edom. Apart from what Christ has done for us and taking refuge in Him, we are the enemies of God. But praise God, we don't have to remain by nature, children of wrath. We can become children of the promise through faith in the one who took God's wrath for us. In verse 3, we are reminded that those who remain enemies of God will not be left un. 
punished. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You say, well, I don't understand, Daniel. I trusted Jesus. I thought my sins weren't going to be punished. I I thought that was the blessing of salvation is I don't have to be punished for my sin. That is the blessing of salvation. But because God is jealous and because he's just, the sins still have to be punished. For those who flee to Christ, who take refuge in God, it isn't that your sins went unpunished. It's that your sins are punished in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who took the afflictions for you. Oh, your sins will be punished. They'll be punished in Christ himself. But for those of us who who want to have a divided heart, who want to have God on one side and me, myself, and I, and all my sin that I enjoy so much on the other To all of us with our pet sins, our big sins, and our in-between sins, hear from the prophet Nahum, God is a jealous God. What does that mean for North Roanoke Baptist Church? Well, I submit to you as your pastor, here's some things that I know that it does mean. A church that ignores the biblically prescribed ways of encouraging its members toward holiness Things like church discipline, admonishing one another, correcting one another, reproving one another, training one another in righteousness. Those churches that say, well, we're just going to get together and be happy and say, Jesus loves us, isn't that great, and pat each other on the back and not dig down deep into the stuff of each other's lives and never get connected with a Sunday school class and never get to know somebody in here that you can trust to help hold you accountable and lift you up when you're struggling against the enemy. If that's the kind of church we want to be, we'll never be the church that God made us to be. And we're not going to be that church. We're going to be a church that takes seriously the fact that God is holy and He is a jealous God. We're not going to leave the door wide open for the enemy to come in here and have a field day with us and invite the jealous wrath of God poured out on His people. No, we are going to do the harder thing. We're going to make ourselves vulnerable. We're going to open our hearts to one another. We're going to say, I invite you, brother, to point out the pride in my life. I invite you, sister, to point out the worry and the gossip in my life. We're going to cut it off before it starts, and we are going to be a holy people because we've been rescued by a holy God who calls us in 1 Peter to be holy as he is holy, that the world might see the character of the God who has redeemed us. But God be praised. He is slow to anger. Yes, he has wrath and vengeance and he is jealous, but look at the beginning of verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. In 2 Peter verse 9 of chapter 3, he writes, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Yet it is also true In verse 3, that God is great in power. Why does Nahum put God's patience and his power side by side? Why does Nahum do that? Let me submit to you, it's because we often mistake God's patience for his impotence. Well, God's patient with me. He doesn't really care about what I'm doing. 
He doesn't really have power to intervene in my life and correct me or discipline me or chasten me. So I'm just going to rock on and do what I want to do. Because as long as I made a profession of faith way back when, God doesn't care how I live. And I submit to you, that is presuming on the patience of God and underestimating the power of God. Don't mistake a delay in God's judgment against your sin for indifference toward your sin. Yes, he is slow to anger, but he is great in power. You see, those who belong to God, those who really belong to God, don't spend their entire lives trying to get away with as much as they can in terms of sin, hoping that they'll beat God to death in the nick of time and pray a prayer and make everything right on their deathbed and then they'll be okay. Those aren't the people who belong to God. The people who belong to God don't test his patience. They rest in his power and they rest in his holiness, the provision of Christ who came and gave them his holiness that they might be holy as he is holy. Here's what God has been showing me this week. If you find it easy to sin, I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not saying you don't sin. But if you find it easy to sin, to keep on tripping through the same sin pattern and not caring, if it doesn't frustrate you, if you're able to live in a clear pattern of sin and then say you have God on the other, your vision of God is way too small. And you're not worshiping the big G God, you're worshiping a little G God that you made in your own image, not the God who made you in his image. Anybody here familiar with Chuck Norris? <laughs> Chuck Norris is, is Hollywood's strong guy. He always plays the part of the invincible character in the movies, which has given rise to these Chuck Norris jokes. He's taken on a, a sort of a godlike quality in his, in his power, Right? Uh, so, so here are a few Chuck Norris jokes for you. When Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, he had three missed calls from Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris is counted to infinity twice. <laughs> and, and, and my personal favorite, there used to be a street named Chuck Norris, but it was changed because nobody crosses Chuck Norris and lives. <laughs> You see, we can all share a, a good laugh about the mythical power of Chuck Norris. But the power of Almighty God is simply no laughing matter. How powerful is our avenging God? How powerful is this God? Verse 3, to begin to conceive of His greatness, we have to think of the largest, most majestic, most terrifying elements of His creation as just the side effects of His presence. I went, I lived through a minor earthquake in North Carolina. I was on the third floor and all of a sudden our, our um, file cabinet started shaking. And, and I remember that being there with my colleague, I said, what's going on? And at first the, the file cabinet wasn't shaking, but I thought the floor was moving. And he said, you're crazy. You must be having a heart moment or a panic attack or something. And then when that file drawer started shaking, my colleague, his name was Blair. I've never seen somebody move so fast in all my life. He was out of the office, down the stairs, and out of the building because he didn't want the building to fall on him. And here's what God is saying. Whether it's a whirlwind and a storm, whether it's the cloud and the dust beneath his feet, think of whatever the most awesome feature of creation is. And God is so much bigger than that. He is like a man, as a man goes on the dust, so Jehovah goes on the clouds. 
See the, see the biggest clouds in the sky and consider that that was a toe of God just kicking up a little dust as he ran down the baseline. God is bigger than you can conceive of. He's holier than you can conceive of. How else do we know his power? Verse 4, he can reverse the effects of creation. The sea, he takes it and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. He reminds us here of the Red Sea and the Jordan River, which he parted in order to bring deliverance to his people. He can make Bashan and Caramel and Lebanon, these places of prosperity and great productivity, he can dry them up in an instant. And verse 5, he can destroy everything that he created. The power of creation never exceeds the power of the Creator. The ancient mountains quake, the hills dissolve, and the earth, verse 5, the earth, it's a word that means the entire habitable earth and everything living in it is upheaved in a moment when he acts in vengeance against his enemies. So Nahum asked this question, or these questions, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? The answer to these two rhetorical questions is no one. Did you notice in verse 6 that he uses four words for anger? Now most translations only have three, but the word for anger actually is fierce anger or anger anger in the Hebrew. So there's the word indignation, there's anger anger or fierce anger, and there's wrath. So four times in verse 6, Micah wants us to know that God is angry. He is angry with anything that wants to run in willful opposition to him. And his anger is pictured here like molten lava rushing down Mount Zion and consuming everything that never, ever becomes his from the heart. You see, God's interest in God, God's interest in purity and holiness is not a passing fad. It is who he is. God is holy. He is the standard by which our lives will be measured. And our only hope is that we would take refuge in the perfectly good God who came and gave us the righteousness of God in the flesh. That we would take refuge in the one who says, we know you can't do it, but here it is. Take the righteousness of God as a gift. So secondly, we must take refuge in our good God. After we consider, church, who God is, after we really think about how big God is and the power that he has, how can we keep on running into willful rebellion over and over and over again? We ought not do it. Instead, we ought to do what verse 7 says. Take refuge in God. Did you notice what happens in verse 7? After you read the word anger four times in verse 6, what does Micah do? Oh, excuse me, Nahum do? He says the Lord is good. Isn't it good that the Lord is good? Didn't you need to read that after verse 6? I sure did. God is angry, he's angry, he's angry, he's angry. The Lord is good. Praise God, the Lord is good. You see, God's wrath against his enemies does not undermine his goodness. It confirms it. Because our enemies are sin. Sin is irrational. To, to sin is, is silly. It makes no sense. When you measure sin from eternity, you would never do sin. But do we ever do that? No, we measure sin from the moment. And so we want to jump right in. But God has defeated our enemy of sin. God has defeated death. And because God has taken his wrath and his anger against sin and death and the enemy, we can rejoice and say God, has, God is good. You see, in the manifestation 
of God's wrath, he proves his goodness. Because by judging sin and death and exterminating the wicked, he brings deliverance of the righteous who trust in the Lord. And we indeed need to be those who trust in the Lord. You see, if we take refuge in this good God, if we determine to stop pursuing those things which are opposed to God and to seek every possible way to walk in His way, He knows who we are. Did you see that in verse 7? He knows those who take refuge in Him. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. How is it that you can break the stronghold of sin in your life? You want run to the one who is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And I want you to hear this truth, church. By the same power with which God consumes everything that is opposed to Him, God keeps those who run to Him for shelter. Did you get that? All this power and anger and might and vengeance poured out against God's enemies. That same kind of power, the same God who kicks up clouds as the dust of his feet is the God who keeps you in his hand when you run to him for refuge. And there's no other power that can take you out of his hand. We must run to our great God for refuge. And here's the reality. If you have run to Christ as your refuge, the promise of verse 7 is God knows who you are. Your name's recorded in the Lamb's book of life, and when he rolls that out on the great judgment day, you will not be enemy of God incurring his wrath. You will be friend of God who Christ drank down every drop of God's wrath for you. You see, in the verses that follow verse 8 and continue until verse 18, we see the miracle of the cross in Nahum. Now, we don't have time to read it, but I want to I basically distill for you, as we bring this sermon to a close, the cross of Christ in Nahum. Because Nahum tells us there's an enemy. And it, it, even if it was twisted like thorns, even if it had the braggadocious nature of a drunkard, even though it's strong and mighty in power, strong in number and mighty in power, he tells us all these things about the enemy. And guess what? The enemy looks an awful lot like the enemy who nails Jesus to the cross. Because here's the truth. Our enemy is ultimately defeated by God at the cross. So let me walk you through these next few verses of Nahum by stringing them together quickly so you can see Calvary's cross right here in Nahum, centuries before Christ ever comes. You see, none of us can escape the allure of compromise with sin and flee to God in our own power. God must conquer the enemy for us. If the, even if the enemy were invincible, even if he were twisted like thorns, verse 10, and seem as invincible as a drunkard thinks himself to be, verse 10, God has brought his overwhelming flood of judgment, verse 8, down on his own son, so that all who flee to him for refuge, verse 7, may be saved. Hear this clearly. Jesus has worn the twisted reads on his head. 
Jesus has drunk down the wine cup of God's wrath. And the enemy, which is mighty in number and numerous in power, verse 12, that has come against Christ at Calvary, has been cut off by the power of his blood, verse 12. And they have been pursued into outer darkness, verse 8. And the distress that our enemy wants to bring us will not rise up again, verse 9. It will not rise up against God's people because Nahum strongly implies and Jesus emphatically declares it is finished at the cross. God killed the enemy when the enemy thought they killed God. And because this is true, guilt is gone, sin's power is pulverized, and the afflictions that Christ took for us when he was punished for our sin in verse 12 cannot come against us again. You can't be punished twice. There is no double jeopardy with a just and jealous God. And when he rescues you in your son, and he's drunk down the wrath of God, and he's bore the punishment for your sin, he makes you God's once and for all. And look at what he does in verse 13. He breaks the yoke of our sin, and he takes the shackles of our self-absorbed lives, and he rips them off so that we might be willing and joyful slaves of the king who has conquered all that is opposed to him and to his glory. Great, Daniel, what do we do about it? What do we do about that? Three things very quickly. First, we should weep. Paul writes in Philippians 3.18, For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you weeping that they are what? Enemies of the cross of Christ. Let me ask you, North Roanoke, when is the last time you wept over the fact that there are people still trapped in sin and facing an everlasting death separated from God. When's the last time you wept for them? The God they face is the God that we just read about in Nahum. We should weep. We too should be burdened for those who do not yet know this God. But secondly, we should invite people Look at verse 15. Because the enemy has been vanquished, there are the feet of him who brings good news. Who is it that should be bringing the good news on the mountaintops? It's us. So I'm not telling you to go to the Mill Mountain Star and preach the gospel, but if you do, I'd say amen. But that's not what I'm asking you to do. But how about this? How about we invite somebody to church in the next week? Did you know seven out of ten people who are adults in the United States of America. Seven out of ten adults in America who've never been to church have never been invited to church. Seventy percent of people who aren't in church have never been invited to church. And you know why that's true? Ninety-eight percent of regular adult, uh, church-attending adults have never invited one, anyone to church. Ninety-eight percent. How is that possible? So church, let me ask you. I'm not telling you to give a full presentation of the gospel this week in your cubicle. I'm not asking you to go to the top of Roanoke Mountain and shout the gospel or Tinker Mountain or the Mill Mountain Star. But how about this? Invite somebody to church. And finally, we must worship with confidence. Look at verse 15. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. As we close this morning, I want to ask you to do me a favor. I want you to sing your heart out to the Lord if you know Him. If He's made you not an enemy of God, but a child of God, then would you praise Him? 
worship like you know this great God? And some of you, you have a connections card. And when I said you need to invite somebody to church, you thought about somebody that you're supposed to invite to church, somebody you know that's lost. And you want the staff to pray this week that God would give you the courage to actually invite them to church. Or you want to pray that God would use you to bring them ultimately to a saving knowledge of who God is. Would you write their first name down on your connections card? It's really simple. Because we'll actually pray. Just their first name. That's all we need. And would you leave it on that black table as you leave? Your connections card, a pen, and the name of someone that you would like your staff to join you in praying for, that you would actually invite to church, and that God would use that invitation to change their life forevermore. To move them from enemy of God to child of God. So as we, Kim, as I invite you to come, begin to play, we're going to sing, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. And I can't think of a more appropriate ending to the sermon than that, because the reality is our hope is found in verse 7 of chapter 1. All those who take refuge in God, all those who see that they can't do it on their own, and they must flee to God are the ones that God rescues and He delivers and He saves. So I don't know where you are this morning in your journey with Christ. But if you need a church home, if you want to be a part of a church that's going to take the holiness of God seriously, we would love to invite you to join us on mission at North Roanoke Baptist Church. You just come and say, I want to join the church. We'll talk to you more about that. Some of you don't know this God yet. The bumper sticker on the back of your car says, House Divided. I talk about God on Sunday, and I live like I don't have anything to do with God the rest of my life. And the reality is, a divided heart will stand before God and say, Lord, Lord, and God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's time to stop having a divided heart. And there's others of you, God's laid somebody on your mind, on your heart, you want to pray for. You're welcome to come and pray. So as we sing, Lord, I need you, we invite you to come. We'll not hold the invitation long. Just come.